Okay, brothers and sisters, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We're going to be doing some fast flipping today. If you've noticed, this morning's sermon, excuse me, this morning's service is all about God's Word. That's because as we continue into sermon number two of our Refresh series, we are going to be talking about expositional preaching this morning. Long ago, at many times and in various ways, God spoke to his people, our forefathers. In these last days, God is still speaking to us, his people, primarily through his son, Jesus Christ. So my question for you this morning is, can you hear him? I don't want you to answer too quickly. I don't want you to be flippant. I don't want you to respond with this trite spirit. Can you hear the voice of Jesus? If you are unable to clearly hear the voice of Jesus, you should know that you will be unable to faithfully follow Jesus. In John 10, 27, Jesus says this, follow his logic, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The true sheep of Jesus can hear the voice of Jesus, even in the midst of the cacophony of voices in this fallen world that are trying to lead us away from heaven trying to lead us away from God, even in the midst of all of this static, the true sheep of Jesus can hear the voice of Jesus. And that is the voice that they follow. So let me ask you again this morning, can you hear him? Well, Sean, surely you don't mean that we should be hearing Jesus speaking to us audibly, you know. Well, yeah, correct. You're right. I don't expect that you would audibly hear Jesus talking to you in the same way that you hear my voice through the sound system right now. That wasn't normal in the times of the Bible for people to hear audibly the voice of God. So we shouldn't really expect it to be normal today for most Christians. Well, if that's not what I'm, what I'm talking about, then what do I mean? Well, in this morning's sermon, I'm asking if you can hear the voice of Jesus as it has been given to us In God's Word. To put a finer point on it, to get more specific, I'm asking if you can hear the voice of Jesus in the Word of God when we gather together as a church. One body. We scatter out into the world, we go, we live our lives, we try to be faithful in whatever sphere Jesus has called us to, but then we come back together as Sixth Avenue Community Church. And when we do that, I want to know, can we hear Jesus? It may surprise you to know that millions of Christians today, all over the world, maybe especially in America, hear very little of the voice of Jesus in the church. The sheep in many churches 
Far too many churches can only make out the voice of their shepherd if they strain and listen with everything that they have in them. This is not good. It's not new. We can remember our brothers and sisters 500 years ago, in the time of the Reformation, after enduring perhaps a thousand years of darkness without God's word in the medieval Catholic Church, where they rarely, if ever, had access to God's holy word in the church, in their homes, anywhere. If they did go to service, which they probably didn't, but if they did go to service, the odds of them being able to hear God's word were about zero. What they would have heard was a dead language being spoken by the priest. And even if they could speak Latin, what they would have heard, if they could understand, would not have been God's word. It would have been the history and traditions of the church. More word of man than word of God. Now, we know that God in his kindness used various men and women, Peter Waldo, John Huss, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, to restore God's word back to the church at great cost. And yet, in untold thousands of churches today, the sheep that belong to Jesus can only barely hear his voice in the church. Why? Because very few pastors have been trained to teach and preach expositionally. If you've never heard of expositional preaching before, it just means that the point of the text is the point of the sermon. Expositional preaching refers to a method of preaching wherein we come to the text and we exert all of our energy, all of our focus, all of our mind, all of our heart to find out the answer to this one question. What is God saying in this text? We're not asking, what does this text mean to me? Because that would be a really silly question to ask, right? If I write an email to Will and say, hey, Will, here are some things that I need done around the church. If I write an email to Luke and say, Luke, here are your intern assignments for the next couple of weeks, which I need to get better at. If I were to do that and Will were to respond, well, Sean, let me tell you what your email means to me. I think what you're saying is I need to go hang out at the coffee shop all day. I'll say, well, that's, I'm not really interested in what the email means to you. If Luke says, well, Sean, I think my intern assignments, what I'm getting from it, what I understand you to be saying is that I need to go to Six Flags. I'll be back on Friday. I'll say, no, 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 that's not how this works. What you need to understand is what I mean when I write that email. If I write a letter to my congressman or congresswoman to support or oppose a particular bill, I hope that my representative doesn't read that and interpret it according to what he or he, she thinks I'm trying to say and rather tries to perceive my intent. Expository preaching goes to the text, it goes to the Word of God and asks, what is Jesus saying here? I mean, it's built into the very name, expository, that's exposed. I'm trying to come to the text and not discover some new meaning that no one's ever heard before or discover some unique thing that God has for me that the author would have never even imagined in a million billion years. No, we're trying to expose what the original intent of the author was, the human and divine. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of our time together this morning trying to show you from Scripture 
why I think expository or expositional, they're synonymous, so probably, I'll probably flip back and forth between the two. I, I can't help it. Uh, why expository preaching should be the main preaching diet of the local church. We're beginning our refresh series with expositional preaching because if we don't get this right, then it, the odds of us getting anything else right are very, very slim. You know, if we get preaching right and then we do get other things right, like evangelism or church membership, that'll be what uh, Bob Ross calls a happy accident, you know. But I'll tell you, happy accidents in the church where God's people don't rightly hear the voice of Jesus are very rare. More often than not, what happens when a church is unable to hear the voice of Jesus is that that church ends up very, very unhappy. So with that in mind, I've got three points for you this morning. These are basically the three points of my argument. Note takers, here they are. Point number one, my biblical argument. Point number two, my theological argument, which, you know, it's also biblical, but you get what I'm saying. Point number three, my practical argument. Biblical, theological, and practical. So let me pray and then we'll jump in. Father God, help us to hear from you this morning. Help me to practice what I preach. If I misspeak, if I say something wrong, Lord God, I pray that you would correct me and that you would protect us. Lord God, help us to love your word and to desire to hear from you more. Amen. Point number one, biblical. Uh, before we get into the expositional part of expositional preaching, I think we probably need to begin this sermon with a look at preaching in general and why preaching is so important for the church. Uh, we live in a day and age where preaching is sort of seen as uh, optional. You know, that, this is the sort of thing that's taught in seminaries. It's practiced this way in churches. Uh, discipleship is seen as something that happens more with like one-on-one -on -one or small group discussions. People almost never assume that what we're doing right now is the most significant form of discipleship that takes place in the church. Maybe even preaching is seen as something that's sort of old school, you know, we don't really need it. We can do just as much with podcasts and painting and interpretive dance. I'm not making that up, by the way. That's a real argument that real people make. But I'd like to argue that preaching is an integral part of our life together as a body. Let me show you why from Scripture. I remember when I first got to the church, I started preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Man, it was a really sweet year walking through that gospel. One of the things that hit me was how quickly Jesus started preaching in his ministry. I mean, in the gospel of Mark, it only takes 14 verses into chapter 1 before we read about Jesus preaching. Mark 1.14. Now, after John was arrested, and by the way, John, you know what his big thing was, right? He was preaching. After he was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, says Mark proclaiming the gospel of God. Now this, this language of proclamation, that's synonymous with preaching. It's, it's to herald. And that's what we do when we preach. We proclaim, we herald the good news. Now, I also remember as we walked through the rest of the gospel of Mark, I couldn't believe how often Mark highlighted the fact that everywhere that Jesus went, 
all he did was preach. That was, I mean, it wasn't all he did, but it was like the main thing he did. It was his priority. So much so that sometimes he even had to separate himself from doing other good things because he had to go on preaching. Mark 1.38, Jesus says, we have to go on to the next town so I can keep preaching. In Mark 2, it was standing room only in this guy's house. Jesus preached the word to them. Mark 3, Jesus sends out the 12. The main thing that he tells them to do when they go out, preach. Mark 16, after the resurrection, Jesus commissions the, disciple to t- the disciples to take the gospels to the end of the earth. And this is how Mark records his command, uh, how they received the command. They went out and preached everywhere. Now, branching out from Mark in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this, I must preach the good news, for I was sent for this very purpose. We so often think about Jesus and his coming to the earth to live a perfect life, to die on our behalf, to rise from the grave, to ascend to heaven. All that's true. Jesus says, I have to preach about that before it happens. That's why I've come. The disciples, after the resurrection of Christ, they followed in their master's footsteps. They carried out the first leg of the Great Commission. And do you know what they did when they went out? They preached. Acts chapter 5. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In Acts 6, there's a mercy issue that arises in the church that's also kind of like a racial issue. Sound familiar? There are these Hellenistic Jews and these more Jewish Jews. They're both widows. There's a food allotment issue. Somebody's getting cheated. It gets brought before the apostles. The apostles say, okay, listen, we need to have deacons to take care of this. We can't take care of this. Why? Why didn't the apostles want to jump in there, roll up their sleeves and help the widows? Well, because they had to focus on preaching. They say it themselves, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, in saying that, they're not saying that serving tables is bad or wrong. When you look at the qualifications for a deacon, it's a very important job. But it's not as important as preaching the word of God. And they had their priorities straight. When Paul and Barnabas encountered persecution at Iconium, they decided to flee. Why? Well, it tells us in Acts 14, so that they could continue to preach the gospel. Listen to the connection a few verses later to preaching and disciple making. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. That's the language of the Great Commission. Go out, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. They were out doing that. How were they doing it? They were preaching. How did the disciples of Jesus, the apostles of Jesus, understand the Great Commission, the marching orders that they received from Jesus right before he ascended back up into heaven? They understood it primarily to be a mission to go out and to preach. Friends, the Great Commission will be accomplished through the means of preaching. Romans 1.14, Paul explains why that is theologically. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching 
How are the nations going to get Jesus if somebody doesn't go out and proclaim him? That's Paul's logic. That's why in Romans 15, 20, Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Paul was singular in his focus. He had one ambition, one aim, to preach the good news of Jesus. But preaching is not just an evangelistic tool. And we know that the Great Commission is not just seeing converts made, but converts to continue in discipleship. And so you see all throughout the New Testament this language of preaching that's also connected to our sanctification, our growth in Christ, our being built up in the body. Romans 1.15, Paul is speaking to a church that already exists, Christians who have already been saved. And yet he says this, I am eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Oh, I know you got it already, but guess what? I'm going to come and I'm going to preach your face off. I'm going to give you more, okay? You can't get enough of this. At the end of Romans, Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, right? That's that language of discipleship, the language of sanctification. To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, if you're out there in the congregation and you're like, Sean, sometimes I just feel so weak as a Christian. What should I do? Well, there's like a thousand things that you can do. We can talk about that at greater length. But for right now, let me just give you one main point of application. Be here on a Sunday morning. Make it a point, if you want to have a strong relationship with the Lord, to sit under the faithful preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will build you up in his son Jesus Christ through this very ordinary means. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now, I want to remind you, brothers, of this gospel that I preach to you. So this preaching, it's not just this one-off thing. Paul says, listen, I'm coming back and I'm hitting you with it over and over and over again. I don't think you can get away from it if you're a believer in the Bible. Preaching is very, very important. From the prophets of the Old Testament, which I haven't even addressed in this sermon because we just don't have time, to John the Baptist, from Jesus and the apostles to this sinner standing before you in this pulpit. Preaching is one of the main ways that God speaks to his people, both for salvation and sanctification. Okay, so let's just assume that you're all agreeing with me in your hearts, right? Oh, that was super convincing, Sean. Thanks for that. You're welcome. I'm happy to serve. But why is preaching so important? Why has God chosen preaching to be the primary means through which he communicates the gospel to his people for their strengthening. Well, it's, it's because of the nature of the gospel itself, what the gospel is. Have you thought about that? Friends, the gospel is itself a declaration. The gospel is good news. It's the best news. You don't come home and say, hey, I got the job. You come home, kick the door open, grab the kids, kiss them, grab your wife. We're going out for dinner. I got the job. These videos are going viral right now of people. They set up the webcam. They open up their email. And they go, I got in. 
to Calhoun Community College. No, to Harvard, Stanford, Yale, whatever college you've been trying to get in, you know, Duke, Brown, I don't know. I've never been to college. (laughs) (laughs) They're always so excited. When the war's over, people aren't out on the streets going, hey, you hear the war's over? Yeah, four years, it's kind of tough. They go, we won! We won! Our guys are coming home! That's what we do when we declare the gospel. Jesus wins. Sin and death are swallowed up. The kingdom is here. Wait for it. All things are about to be made new. Man has been reconciled back to God. Man has been reconciled back to one another. This is good news. You can't communicate that effectively through any other means than preaching, than heralding, than proclaiming. It just wouldn't feel right. It would just be... You can't communicate the gospel through interpretive dance. You know what I'm saying? That's not to say that you can't communicate anything good out of that or any other kind of art form that you may be interested in. You can. But there's something about the complexity of human language that is required to communicate the fullness of what God has done for us in Christ. You you can't effectively communicate the emotive aspect of the gospel through a lecture. Because... The gospel is not something to be examined like a cell membrane or like the innards of a frog pinned down to a corkboard. The gospel is something that must be grasped, not just intellectually, but also received by the heart. And friends, lectures rarely capture our hearts. Preaching matters because it is the primary instrument that God has chosen to communicate the word of life to his people. Now, that leads us to one more question. Why does it matter that God's people have God's word? Well, that leads us to point number two, theological. In order to understand why expositional preaching is so important. Not just preaching, but expositional preaching is so important. We have to understand this truth. The Word of God gives life to the people of God. The Word of God gives life to the people of God. In Genesis 1, we begin to see the power of God's Word to give life. God speaks, the world comes to be. In Genesis 12, God speaks a word of promise to Abraham, and the nation of Israel is created. In Exodus 3, God's word calls out to Moses from the burning bush. And then later in Exodus, God's word goes out to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron, his prophets. And with his word comes new life, redemption. In Exodus 20, God gives his law to his people, thereby formally constituting them as a nation. You just keep going. You just do this. I just did Genesis and Exodus, and I didn't even do all of Genesis and Exodus. You could do this throughout the whole Bible. The Old Testament has 23,000 verses. 
The phrase, the word of the Lord, occurs some 3,800 times. That's about once every 16 verses. That's a lot. The prophets speak God's word to God's people. The priests teach God's word to God's people. The kings are called to uphold the practice of God's word for the sake of God's holy people. The singers in the temple are called to teach God's people to sing God's holy word to the people. When you read the Old Testament, you can see a basic pattern emerge. Every time something goes wrong in the Old Testament, it's because the people of God have abandoned the word of God. Every time their life begins to be kind of sucked out of them, it's because they're not connected to God's word. And then every time things get better in the Old Testament, it's because the people of God return to God through his word. The life or death of the people of God is inextricably connected to the word of God. Turn with me, please, to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, we're just going to be starting in verse 1. I know everyone's, it's Ezekiel, it's right there. We get there just as quickly as we get to Genesis. Amen? I had to uh, mark mine so I wouldn't look foolish up here trying to find Ezekiel. I'm the pastor, right? I should be able to get there pretty quickly. Starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Do you know what it means that they were very dry? It means that they've been there for quite some time. Whoever these people were, they've been dead for a while. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? The answer to that has to be obvious. It has to be an obvious no. And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Okay, well played, Ezekiel. Well played. Then he said to me, prophesy, that is, preach, speak my word over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, that is, as I spoke God's word over God's people, there was a sound and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and the flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, 
son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and the breath of these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, if you want to know what this vision means, you can just keep reading. Verse 11, then he said to me, God is so kind to explain, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. In this vision, we have God's people as dead as they can possibly be. But God's word comes to them by the power of God's spirit, and they come to life. And they are reunited with their God. And the promised land is a vision of what they will one day face when they see him face to face and they get to live with him forever. This is an image that is repeated from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible. It's a vision that you have experienced in your own life. If you sit here today as a Christian, you have received the word of God. It's brought life to your dry bones. If you're sitting here this morning and you think that you're a Christian and you just don't really care about God's word, you're sort of disinterested in it, you don't really want to make time for it, you don't really believe it, you don't really want to obey it, you're not a Christian. That's not the way this works. God's word doesn't bring you to life only to leave you apathetic to the very thing that saved you. God's word is the only thing in the world that can put sinew and flesh on our dry spiritual bones. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 6, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, members of 6th Avenue, why I began this sermon by asking you if you can hear the voice of Jesus? It's the most important thing in the world for you. You can't live without his voice. Listen to how Peter very obviously understood this concept. He says, speaking to Christians, you have been born again, given life, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. How is it that you can live? Because God's word has been planted within you, and God's word is life itself. So I need everyone to focus here, because this is where kind of all this comes together in one paragraph, okay? Thinking caps, focus. If God's word is the source of life for God's people, and it is, 
And if preaching is the primary divinely ordained instrument of communicating that word, and it is, then it should naturally follow that the kind of preaching that we do is the kind that allows God's word to have preeminence. There are two basic kinds of preaching. I've already talked a little bit about expositional preaching, but let's just revisit it by way of contrast. The two kinds of preaching are topical and expositional. Topical preaching is whenever a preacher knows what he wants to say, and then he goes to the Bible to find the material that he needs in order to weave together a message based off of the idea that he has in his head or the burden that he has on his heart. This is not bad. It's not wrong. I'm doing it in this morning's sermon. It is dangerous. We'll talk about it in a minute. Then there's expositional preaching. The point of the text is the point of the sermon. That is, whenever we come to the text, right, we want to ask what idea or truth was the original author, as inspired by God, desiring to communicate. So if, if I'm an expositional preacher, I come to the text, I try to understand whatever the original idea or truth was in the mind of the author, as inspired by God, and then I just want to give that to you. That's all I'm trying to do is just give you that. That's what expositional preaching is. It was defined by Charles Simeon like this. My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there and not to thrust in what I think might be there. And I would add what I might hope would be there. I have a great jealousy on this head. Never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. John Brodus once quipped that if some sermons had smallpox, the text would never catch it. Now, these two kinds of preaching, topical and expositional, are often viewed as two equally valid ways of preaching. If you were to be in a seminary class on, you know, a homiletics class, which is about preaching, you know, your professor might pull up a slide and, you know, there's topical and he would describe it, and then there's expositional and he would describe it, and he Maybe he, if you were at a good seminary, seminary, maybe he'd try to sell you on one, but most likely just, you know, here's one way to do it, here's another way to do it. Well, friends, I don't think that that's a good way to think about this. I think that expositional preaching, at least insofar as the steady diet of the church goes, should be the main thing that we practice in the church. And there are a few reasons for that. The main reason has to do with everything that we've talked about thus far in point number two. If God has spoken, and he has, then we want to know what God has said. And although topical preaching is able to communicate the word of God, it is limited in its ability to do so. Now, we're going to talk about that more in point number three. For now, let me just say that topical preaching is more likely to inject the congregation with more of the words of the preacher and the ideas of the preacher than the words of God and the truths of Scripture. The reason why is because the starting point for the sermon, when a man preaches an expositional, excuse me, a topical sermon, the starting point for his sermon is his own idea, is his own burden, his own thoughts. Trump's at it again. Let me find something in the Bible to talk about in relation to that. Our denomination is going through this issue. Let me find something in the Bible to talk about that. There's a quarrel in the church. Let me find something in the Bible to talk about that. 
I'm really excited about this new theological thing that I'm learning. Let me find something in the Bible to talk about that. None of this is inherently bad, but it is inherently dangerous. When the starting place for the regular preaching of God's word is whatever just happens to be on the heart and mind of the pastor. In this church, we practice expositional preaching primarily because it allows God's word to have center stage. It makes God's word the star of the show, the main object of our attention. In expositional preaching, all of our meditations and reflections on the text, all of the applications that flow out of the text, come from a right understanding of the text. Listen to the way that Paul talks about his preaching in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, how do they hear it? From the preaching. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Now, pause. Hopefully, we're all good, discerning members of the church. Maybe some alarm bells are going off right now. Maybe you're like, but Sean, you're not an apostle. You're not inspired by God. You don't write anything in the Bible. I mean, I write notes in the Bible, but you know, you're just, I mean, yeah, you're just a regular pastor. True. But insofar as any preacher rightly communicates what Paul intended to say when he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, insofar as any pastor communicates what Jesus said and what he intended to say, insofar as any man comes and opens up this book and preaches what the prophet intended to say, that preacher is still giving you the inspired word of God. His word isn't inspired, but that's not what he's doing. He's not trying to give you his word. He's trying to give you God's word, and God's word inspired in the text is still God's word inspired to you through a sermon. The reason why expositional preaching is so important is because it is a kind of preaching that tries to minimalize the ideas of the man who's delivering God's word. It tries to put a barrier in place, a a safety, a tripwire. I think this kind of preaching can be best understood through uh, the image of a signal amplifier. Wait, am I saying that right? A signal booster. Now, guys, uh, please don't come up to me after the service and tell me how this analogy isn't really right because that's not really how signal boosters work. Spencer, looking at you. Uh, I know that I don't know things, but I think this is a good analogy, so just let me have it. Uh, Many buildings have signal boosters because the cell phone signal that comes out of the towers uh, are incapable of getting inside of the building. If you've ever worked in a government building, they have those. Sometimes I wonder if some of the buildings have signal jammers so that you can't ever get any good reception. But sometimes it's hard for your phone to get the signal, so there's a box on the outside of the building. It captures the signal coming from the tower, it processes it, and then there's something on the inside, an amplifier, that then sends that cell phone signal out into the building so that you can have full bars and scroll through vines and memes and TikToks on the interwebs. This is basically the task of the expositional preacher. He is just trying to grab the divinely inspired word of God as it has been given to the church in scripture 
And then he's just trying to amplify it back out to the church, right? A signal booster only has one job, amplify. Signal booster doesn't mix in its own signals, unless it does, don't tell me, okay. It doesn't mix in its own signals, it doesn't try to edit the signals, it just says, no, taking the signals, giving them away. That's my job. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what any man who stands behind this pulpit should be trying to do any time he preaches the word of God. When a church commits itself to a steady diet of expositional preaching, it is committing itself to regularly hearing the voice of God. Now, in point one, I tried to show you the biblical argument for preaching in general. We just finished in point two, me trying to show you the theological rationale for a steady diet of expositional preaching. Finally, in point three, I just want to appeal to you at a practical level, as someone who's been pastoring a church for the last four years and who's done a church revitalization uh, that was primarily just grounded in faithful ministry of God's word, just, I, I just want to show you some things from my experience that I think will be helpful. So point number three, practical. I'm going to give you some subpoints here. Each one of them is going to kind of be under this heading of a preacher who doesn't preach expositionally will dot, 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 whatever. So subpoint number one, a preacher who doesn't preach expositionally will limit his own understanding of the word. A pastor who doesn't preach in the way that I've described this morning will tend to only see and hear in the Bible what he already sees and hears in the Bible. Remember, the starting point of a topical sermon is I have an idea. There's something I want to talk about. There's something on my heart. I think I know what I want to say. So then I come to the scripture. I root around in it. I find stuff that I already know. Oh, that verse in Colossians. Oh, that verse in 2 Corinthians. Then he assembles it and delivers it to the congregation. Guys, if I went about preaching the Bible that way, I would know 1,000% less about Scripture than I do today. I would know much less about God and the beautiful intricacies of the gospel than I do today. I would be much less fit as a pastor than I am today. When I walk through a book like 1 Thessalonians and it says something about the second coming of Jesus, eschatology, which I'm just very weak in and tend to not really want to study, I don't get to say I'm not going to study that. I don't get to say, ah, I guess we're not going to talk about that because I don't really understand it. No, I have to figure it out. And that's good for you. You want me as your pastor or Grant if he preaches or Will if he preaches or Luke if he preaches. Any other man who's going to be an elder who desires to preach, you're going to want us to work through the Bible in a systematic fashion and be constantly learning new things from God's word. If God's word gives life to God's people, how much more so does it equip me to lead you in the church? So just as a, at a very practical level, you should want expositional preaching in your church so that your pastor learns more and more about the Bible. You don't want to be that guy or that girl in a church with a pastor where you know more about the Bible than them. And some of you probably do, and don't come up and tell me about it afterwards. Number two. A preacher who doesn't preach expositionally will limit his congregation's understanding of the word. Limit his congregation's understanding of the word. This flows right out of number one, right? 
But when a pastor only preaches that which he already knows, largely, not always, but largely, this will lead to you having the same limited menu items, right? Just the same, just chicken fingers and fries. You might mix it up with a burger, might mix it up with some nachos or pizza, but it's the same limited menu items. Your pastor is going to be the guy who always finds a way to make it back to his hobby horse. Every church has a different hobby horse. If you come from an independent fundamentalist background, your hobby horse is probably going to have something to do with, I'm looking at Tim, like, man, give me something with your eyes, something about how we're not holy enough, right? Something about how we're just compromising with the world. If you come from another church, somehow, some way, it's always going to come back to politics. Somehow, some way in this church, it's always going to come back to this thing. That is not what you want as a church. You don't want to be the this church. You want to be a church that's known for studying the full revelation of God, right? For declaring the whole counsel of God, for being well acquainted with all of God's word, which is sufficient to give us all that we need for life and godliness. If a pastor ends up only knowing a few things, that will lead to the congregation only knowing a few things, and that will lead to a very unhealthy church life. Number three, a preacher who doesn't preach expositionally will likely exceed the bounds of his authority. When I first got to Sixth Avenue, we changed some things, and it took a while, but you know, we actually changed a lot of things, and that wasn't always easy, even for people who were really rooting for us, you know? Like, yeah, I'm glad you're here. Oh, you're going to change that? Didn't see that one coming. Not easy. We had to make sure that the things that we were going to change in this church were things that God said we actually had the authority to change. We don't want to just stop doing this thing over here because it's a dead tradition of this denomination only to replace it with this other denomination's dead tradition. That's not helpful for anyone. What we need to do is say, okay, does this line up with the word of God? Yes, then we'll do it. Does this line up with the word of God? No, then we won't do it. Somebody has to lead a church in that process. And I don't mean just for a church revitalization. Remember, friends, the church is reformed and always reforming. We're always having to look into God's word, let it expose us for our sins, right, our preferences, and then we're going to have to clear that junk out of there from the right or the left, north or south. I don't really know that's the thing, but you get what I'm saying. We're always having to be reformed by God's word, and somebody has to lead you through that process. Typically, if you're in a healthy church, that'll be the elders. That's a very weighty thing. As an elder, you have to make sure that if you're going to cause an issue in the church, if you're going to expose sin, if you're going to lead God's people in the path of righteousness, even at great cost, you better make sure that what you're doing is something that God says that you should do. And we did. We were constantly examining Scripture to make sure that we were not overstepping our bounds. I'm not saying we got it right all the time. I'm not saying we get it right all the time. But that's the aim. And, you know, what's one of the main ways that the pastor tries to spur his congregation on to change? Sunday mornings, preaching. 
a quarter of the work that I did as a pastor during our time of revitalization was just waiting for something to come up in the text so I could talk about something that we needed to fix in the church. You know, it wouldn't be a hobby horse. I wouldn't be like, all right, I guess we're doing uh, Ephesians 4 today because I want to talk about this. No, just patiently waiting. God, you know, your timing is best. But when it comes up, Sunday morning, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to preach about this. Expositional preaching is like the bumpers in the bowling alley that make sure that your authority doesn't ever end up in the gutters. Number four. The wise preacher will preach expositionally because it's really his only hope as a shepherd. Long before I got to this church, our brother Grant had a burden to see new life in this body. And uh, you know what he did? The, the very first thing that he did just right out of the gate? He started preaching expositionally. And he got better at it. He got a lot better at it with time and help. But before he tackled membership, before he tackled church discipline, before he addressed any doctrinal statements or lack thereof, before he talked about whether or not there should be this kind of elder or that kind of elder in the church, before he did any of that, he started preaching expositionally. This very much reminds me of Ezra. You remember the nation of Israel had been taken into captivity. God had disciplined them for their rebellion, for leaving his word. And then God, his kindness, after 70 years, brought them back into the promised land to rebuild, to reestablish themselves as a people. There were some leaders there, Nehemiah, Ezra, the priest. And here Ezra is with this great burden on his shoulders. God, you brought us back. You haven't given up on us. You've kept your covenant with us. And we're here. We're going to move. We're going to act. I'm the leader. I've got to do something here. I've got to get us on the right track. If we don't start off on the right track, we're going to end up right back under your discipline again. So what do you think Ezra did in that situation? What was the first thing that he set out to do? Listen. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. From early morning until midday. I don't want any complaints about how long services are. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that he had made for this purpose. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And as Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered him, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, and then he lists a whole bunch of names here. These are the priests. They helped the people to understand the law 
while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. God's word being read and then explained so that people could understand the intent. Ezra wanted the people of God to obey the law of God, so he preached the word of God to them expositionally. No program, preaching. This is not the first time that something like this had happened in Israel's history. Do you guys remember Jehoshaphat? Everyone's like, yeah, totally. My favorite character in the Bible, Jesus, Jehoshaphat. Well, he was a faithful king. He followed the ways of the Lord. And uh, he wanted to make sure that God's people kept going in the right direction. Second Chronicles 17.3, we read this. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the ways of his father David before him. He did not consult the Baals, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat, so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Wow. Wouldn't it be a blessing to sit under his rule and reign? Well, the text tells us that one of the main things that he did as this righteous ruler was appoint people whose sole task was to make sure that the Israelites could understand the word of God. Listen. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord. They went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. In light of this leadership, the people of God flourished and prospered under Jehoshaphat. Brothers and sisters, members of Sixth Avenue Community Church, I want you to know that the elders of this church want to see you flourish and prosper. We want to see this church full of the life of God. I'm talking not at all here about finances or programs or anything else like that. I want you to have the spiritual life that Jesus says his words can give you. And because we as a church know that that word excuse me, that that life can only come to you through God's word, we preach in such a way as to maximize the potential for you to hear his word. And so I ask you again, can you hear him? In the life of this church, can you hear the voice of Jesus? If you honestly ask that question and the answer to that is no, you need to go find another church. If the answer is yes, you need to be faithfully committed to this church. You should give your life to this church. You should try to bring other people into this church. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know, friend, that God is most assuredly speaking to you, even now. Will you listen to him? Will you receive his word? I remember before I got saved, I would sit in church services, most of them probably not very good, but I would sit in church services and I would hear God's word. And I despised it. I was bored by it. I saw no life in it whatsoever. Part of the reason is because God's word was saying something hard for me to hear. 
It was telling me the truth about myself. And no one likes to be told the truth about themselves. No one likes to see their flaws. But God's word will do that. It's like a mirror. It'll show you every pockmark on your face, every spot, every blemish on your soul. But God's word also sings a sweet song, a song of grace, of mercy, of love. It's a song that tells an old story about Calvary, about how the word of God came down in the flesh and gave up his life for you that you might be saved. Will you receive God's word this morning? For the members of this church that are Christians, will you obey God's word this morning? You know that it's not enough to just sit here and listen, right? You know that? We can't be like the man who looks in the mirror and sees his reflection and then turns away and forgets what he sees. We have to walk in obedience. I have to walk in obedience. It's hard. We need God's help. And friends, the promise of the gospel is that God is committed to helping us do these things. So let's praise God for who he is and what he's done for us. Let's pray and continue to sing to him. Amen. Amen. Father God, your word has given us life this morning. We praise you. We cannot possibly praise you enough. Lord, we look forward expectantly to what else you're going to do in this church. Whatever it is, we know it's going to be good. Father, help us to walk in the paths you've set for us. Amen.